Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. However hot the rhetoric on impeachment may run, this week's hearings are yielding a lot of cold facts regarding President Trump and his push for the Ukrainian president to announce an investigation that would harm a leading Democratic rival. Several administration officials testified they set off flares, including U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the National Security Council's chief Ukraine hand. He testified Tuesday. Without hesitation, I knew that I had to report this to the White House counsel. I had concerns and... uh, it was my duty to report my concerns to the proper, proper pe- people in the chain of command. He was followed Wednesday by Ambassador Gordon Sondland, a Trump donor and political appointee. Simply put, we were playing the hand we were dealt. We all understood that if we refused to work with Mr. Giuliani, we would lose a very important opportunity to cement relations between the United States and Ukraine. So we followed the president's orders. That very night, Democratic presidential candidates took the stage Wednesday for the fifth debate of the campaign. Candidates sought to focus on their own proposals and on distinguishing themselves, but the prospect of the president hovered over the proceedings. Here was Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. I govern both with my head and my heart, and if you think a woman can't beat Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi does it every single day. Join us. For those following the impeachment hearings, how have they shifted how you think about what the president is accused of having done? On a scale of perfect to impeachable, where do you think the president's actions lie? Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on Twitter and Facebook at On Point Radio. With us from Washington is Karen Demergen. She's a congressional reporter focusing on national security matters for The Washington Post. Karen, welcome to On Point. Good to be with you. Also with us from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Major Garrett. He's CBS News' chief Washington correspondent and author of the book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. He's covered Washington for multiple outlets since 1995. Major, great to have you with us. Hello. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point's own news analyst, Jack Beatty, joins us once more. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Karun, and Major. So I guess I want to start by uh, uh, introducing the concept of the heffalump trap. Now, if folks remember from the children's book, House at Pooh Corner, uh, they set it for a mythical creature, a trap for the mythical creature, the heffalump. And in political journalism, the idea is you're setting it for a political enemy, this trap, and you end up getting trapped yourself. I think we're going to see in coming weeks and months whether that's the outcome for President Trump over his Ukraine misadventures. And later in the hour, we may touch on whether the Democrats themselves may be so trapping themselves by the notion of impeachment. We're going to see it there. I want to turn now to to our guest to talk a little bit about all the developments. Obviously, On Point was in some ways preempted by a lot of the hearings this week. It's our first chance to have a real bite at the apple of the newest uh, of the newest developments. Uh, let's talk, Karin, a little bit about the top of the week and what came out of that with those first, uh, those first witnesses. What was surprising? What was confirmatory? What did we sort of nail down as true that may have been floating out there as allegation? 
Well, you saw a march of different witnesses from uh, Alex Vindman and uh, Jennifer Williams who spoke about what they witnessed in terms of uh, aid being held up, of um, decisions that were being taken internally. And you then heard from Kurt Volker and Tim Morrison who were, you know, moving in closer to the action. And then Gordon Sondland on Wednesday is kind of like the fulcrum of all of this, right? Because um, you you are – the Democrats are laying a case that is kind of moving in towards the center. You have what people who were career officials noticed was happening, how they have testified that the side channel that was being operated by the three amigos and Giuliani seemed to diverge from what they understood the U.S. policy towards Ukraine to be, um, what they observed, what they concluded from what they observed and from what their discussions. And then you get into the center where you're actually talking to some of those three amigos and the people who have direct contact with Giuliani, direct contact with the president. And I I think that there were, you know, there there were major turning points when you had Sondland testify <clears throat> that what he observed, at least in terms of the White House meeting being leveraged on Ukraine committing to these investigations, um, being that quid pro quo that Democrats have been trying to prove. So let's um, let's, if we can, just unpack a little bit of that. It's a lot. <laughs> there are a lot of folks in there, a lot of characters. You mentioned Sondland. He's obviously Gordon Sondland, the ambassador to the European Union. We'll talk about him in a moment. I want to first start with uh, one of the uh, career figures you mentioned, uh, not a diplomat per se, somebody working on national security issues, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman of the U.S. Army. He's assigned uh, to the White House. He's on the National Security Council, a lead figure uh, on Ukraine matters. He came to this country from the former Soviet Union uh, as a toddler as a part of that country that that is now the separate country of Ukraine, uh, he has been accused in recent days of dual loyalty to Ukraine as a result, even facing suggestions he was a s- spy. And in rejecting those claims of disloyalty, he explained why he reported his concerns from back in the middle of this summer about President Trump's call with Ukrainian, Ukrainian President Zelensky. I want to emphasize to the committee that when I reported my concerns on July 10th relating to Ambassador Sondland, and then July 25th, relating to the president, I did so out of a sense of duty. I privately reported my concerns in official channels to the proper authority in the chain of command. My intent was to raise these concerns because they had significant national security implications for our country. I never thought that I'd be sitting here testifying in front of this committee and the American public about my actions. When I reported my concerns, my only thought was to act properly and to carry out my duty. Major Garrett, it's kind of remarkable to think about that he was not only in this position, but that the very next morning he reported back to work at the White House yes. after a report. You know, there was talking not a fruit basket waiting for him, I can tell you that. No, no ribbon on his desk? Uh, no nothing, ribbon uh, on his desk. No gold star in his uh, calendar from that day from fellow White House employees. A um, couple things I'd like to point out for... The audience, which may or may not have been riveted by these proceedings, but a couple things to keep in mind as you sift through what we say, what other people say. First of all, the White House has limited access in every way it can to documents and witnesses. The people who appeared yet yeah, last week and this week were subpoenaed. There are people who are direct fact witnesses the White House will not provide to the committee. Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, the energy secretary, Rick Perry, the secretary of state, Mike Pompeo. Gordon Sondland, the ambassador of the European Union, said, the things I'm telling you, I could probably prove if I could get access to my, my notes or other people who have worked with me's contemporaneous notes, but I can't get them. The State Department won't provide them. So when the White House asserts, as it does routinely, through the voice of the president and others, 
that everything was perfect and there was nothing wrong and there are no fact witnesses being presented, they're withholding the very fact witnesses. And if they could, you would think, provide them to show how perfect and legal and appropriate all this was. And they are not. So you have to keep that in the back of your mind. The second thing. There's been a tremendous Republican sense of argumentation and fulmination that this process is unfair. What is the process? It's a grand jury process, in effect. The House Intelligence Committee is gathering information like a grand jury does. No one in America, before a grand jury, has a defense attorney, period. (laughs) It's a prosecution accumulation of evidence. That's what's going on. And even then, Republicans in the depositions and certainly in public view the last two weeks have had all of their licks at these witnesses. And I think it's worth asking ourselves, and the country can ask itself, how many of those questions were the underlying evidence, or how many of those questions were about the possible suspicious motivations or hatchet jobs on the media, as if the media brought this to the fore of the country. The media didn't do anything. The media just reported what a whistleblower said, and all these other people went through the chain of command because it concerned them so much. Is concern enough to impeach a president? That's for the political body politic and our, our country to figure out. But it was striking to me, David, last week and this week, how many times Republicans didn't actually go to the evidence presented, but went down other places that they thought could at least sow confusion, rile up partisan animosity, but didn't point by point address that which the witnesses were testifying to. Um. Jack Beatty, we had a number of folks uh, testify uh, this week. You had folks like uh, not only uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, you had uh, Jennifer Williams. She was an aide, is an aide to uh, Vice President Mike Pence, uh, somebody who originally was a a campaign worker for Bush Cheney uh, and their reelection was appointed to political appointee and then became a career uh, figure in in national security uh, and and diplomatic issues. You had uh, Fiona Hill. Uh, former National Security Council Senior Director for Europe and Russia. You had David Holmes, a political counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, in uh, the capital of, of Ukraine, and others. A number of these folks, in a certain way, are the kinds of people that in, I, I would imagine the president is talking about when he has talked about the deep state. Others have talked about them as public servants. What did Americans see in their testimony? Well, they saw uh, exemplary public servants uh, to judge by their records, uh, to judge by the um, the judgment of their peers. We heard again and again what one of them thought of the other, and the and the and the thoughts were, the appraisals were uniformly laudatory. They saw truth tellers. They saw in Fiona Hill. A, a a woman who simply uh, you know was trying to say to the Republicans on the committee, if you believe that it was Ukraine and not Russia that intervened in our elections, you're repeating what Vladimir Putin wants you to. That's his line. That's wrong. That's a fiction. Please face reality. And again and again, that's what they were doing. Let's go through the list. Kent, Vinman, Taylor, Cooper, Hale, Williams, Hill, Holmes, Yovanovitch, Sonman. They all uh, uh, agreed. Essentially, you could put it, he did it. The president did what uh, the Democrats are charging. And yet when you turn the channel, you look at Fox News, that wall is still there. Here's Sean Hannity on the day 
of Sondman's uh, testimony. He said, this couldn't be a better day for the for President Trump. It just couldn't go any better. I mean, it was, it just couldn't go any better. Every witness before Sondland today was either a hearsay, so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so said, or let me tell you what I think. That wall is still standing. Truth is still being blocked from Fox News watchers. We're talking about the impeachment inquiry of Don- President Donald Trump, the case Democrats are building publicly to American people and the defense Republicans are offering in return. We'll be taking some calls after a short break. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. We're talking about this week's impeachment hearings, the government officials who had testified, the lawmakers who questioned them, how the American public is absorbing all these developments. We have a sharp panel of guests this hour. We have a sharp panel of guests every hour, but particularly happy with this one. Uh, Karen Demergen, she's congressional reporter at The Washington Post, Major Garrett, chief Washington correspondent at CBS News, and our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beatty. As promised, I want to take a couple of your calls to start this segment. Uh, first, I want to take a call from uh, Rick. He's calling in from Hamden, Massachusetts. What do you think about all this, Rick? Uh, hello. Um, how are you doing? Great. I think that um, the evidence that, that we've seen, particularly um, uh, Ambassador Sondland's testimony, um, being that he is a, a Trump supporter, uh, enough to the point where he donated a million dollars and obviously has some skin in the game, um, I think that convinced me that um, uh, the president needs to be both impeached and removed. Um, when, when, your own, when your own team members start to side against you, uh, that's, that's a sign that you're doing something wrong. All right. Rick, thanks so much. We're going to hand the ball off to uh, David, who's calling from Birmingham, Michigan. Thanks for listening, David. What are your thoughts today? Yes, it's impeachable. To believe that he didn't do what they say he did, you'd have to deny what 12 people have just told us under oath and believe that Donald Trump is the only one telling the truth. Yes, it's impeachable. And my question would have to be, if this isn't impeachable, then what is? And what David, just line to, does he have to cross? David, just to be clear before I relinquish you, what is the this when you say if this isn't impeachable? Asking for assistance from a foreign country 
exerting pressure against that president from a foreign country for his political gain, his personal gain against what seems to be the national security interests of our country. All right. Let me hop over to Madison, Wisconsin, then. Thank you so much for that, David. Want to give Claire a chance to weigh in here. Claire, what are your thoughts today? Hi, David. I listened to the entire series of public hearings, and I was Mm -hmm. so impressed with these brilliant, dedicated, professional servants for our country. And then there's Sondland. And I mean no disrespect to the man, but I honestly believe Trump saw this guy that gave him a million bucks. He threw him into this. Sondland has no experience. He's Trump's naive patsy. Wow. All right. Thank you for that, Claire. Uh, uh, Gordon Sondland taking a little bit on that cleft chin from uh, Wisconsin there uh, in that. So let's play a clip for uh, uh, Karin, for Major, for for Jack, for our listeners uh, of Gordon Sondland. He's the U.S. ambassador to the European Union. He was a bundler for Trump's campaign, which is to say he helped uh, uh, raise money for Trump's campaign from other, other wealthy supporters and then contributed a million bucks. You've heard that term thrown around for the president's uh, inaugural uh, celebrations. Then he delivered that explosive opening statement Wednesday where he implicated Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, and the White House Acting Chief of Staff uh, Mick Mulvaney, all for having knowledge of the pressure Trump wanted put on the Ukraine to investigate uh, Hunter Biden, the, pre- uh, the son of the former vice president. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Mr. Giuliani conveyed to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Volcker, and others that President Trump wanted a public statement from President Zelensky committing to investigations of Burisma and the 2016 election. Mr. Giuliani expressed those requests directly to the Ukrainians, and Mr. Giuliani also expressed those requests directly to us. We all understood that these prerequisites for the White House call and the right White House meeting reflected President Trump's desires and requirements. Rudy Giuliani being not only the former mayor of New York, but also the president's personal lawyer. Uh, Karen Demergen, uh, how important was Sondland for our understanding of what happened? How important are those allegations and how rooted are they in knowledge? It's Sondland's the central witness really at this point. He did not uh, completely go all the way to, the, to, to confirming absolutely everything. He had this kind of somewhat implausible line saying the whole time that he didn't know that when the president was talking about Ukrainian energy company Burisma, he meant the investigations into the Bidens. But that aside, what he, his testimony effectively boils down to is, yes, it happened. Everybody knew about it. And there is some – he alleged that there was some form of cover-up going on too because he said the State Department and the White House kept him from accessing his own records. And he's a current employee of the administration. He's still the ambassador in order to prepare for his testimony. And that's why he said he had to come back and make a much stronger, uh, more incriminating uh, uh, account of what transpired from his first closed-door deposition. I think it's critical when somebody like Sondland, who is a political appointee, makes those allegations and says, yeah, you know, no, this wasn't no, this wasn't right. And also, yes, your fact pattern is 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 true. He didn't deny what others have testified about conversation that they heard him take part in, even if he didn't remember. And 
critically, that is the phone conversation that he had with President Trump the day after Trump and Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, spoke by phone in which Trump um, asked about the investigations and Sondland said in colorful language that I won't repeat on the air, um, that the Ukrainians really love the president, will do anything he asks him to. Um, But just I want to weave into this one thing, which is that I think your second caller made the point of you know, if this is the fact, if, if these are the facts, if this really happened, if somebody like Sondland is saying it happened, in your caller said, how can you not impeach? I don't think the facts really are what is at dispute here. Um, the GOP has not disputed that most of these things happened. They're just disputing whether it's wrong or not. <clears throat> their 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 case has or their their defense of the president has mostly been okay. These things happen, but why why shouldn't we think of Hunter Biden having worked for this Ukrainian energy company whose owner was previously under investigation? Um, why shouldn't we think of that as corruption? Why shouldn't the president be able to fire an ambassador? Why shouldn't these things be able to happen in the normal course of a presidency? I I think a lot of people look at that and say they say no, that's an abuse of power. But the GOP's case has been. Uh, you know, no, it's okay. Most of the witnesses are hearsay witnesses. And even when it looks really, really bad, like that phone call between Sondland and Trump that I just described, their tactic is to go after the diplomat who told the committee about it for being a bad diplomat and reporting it and saying they have a right to have their own private conversation. So it's it, it's a it's a which lens do you choose to look at this through sort of uh, conflict here between the two parties more than a conflict over what specifically happened. It's it's the intent behind those actions that are in dispute. Chuck Beatty, there was a moment where uh, at the outset of his statement where Gordon Sondland said, you know, he talked about the – he opened by basically saying these proceedings are horribly unfair in many ways to me. And I, I was waiting for him to paste the Democrats for it. And he said it's because – and this was something Major alluded to earlier. He said it's because I haven't been able to have access to my notes, my records, my, my emails, the kind of stuff that help, might help me restore memory. Now, it's also the case that this was uh, Gordon Sondland's third bite at the apple, right? Like he had, he had issued these two previous statements and here he was uh, now finally a third time doing this after a number of people had, uh, had already testified being much more specific about the connection between what the president wanted and what he wanted to get out of uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, leaders uh, in exchange for g- giving the American aid and giving a meeting at the White House, as Sondland put it. How credible did you find Sondland as a witness ultimately? Well, the Democrats cut him a lot of slack uh, because he was saying what they wanted him to say and what uh, appears to judge by the consensus of the other witnesses to be the truth. Uh, The president uh, was using our aid to uh, leverage uh, favors out of uh, uh, for his political advantage out of Ukraine. Um, And so the Democrats just didn't really press him on this. On this question of you know have you have you perjured yourself are you keep so and and he was a he was a he was an appealing witness there was an avuncularity a wit uh, a kind of uh, you know he seemed like a man who didn't have a worry in the world I don't know how long he's going to have his job uh, but his his testimony some people likened to John Dean's you know you, there is a cancer on the presidency uh, in that case Nixon. famously. Be- Yes, yes. Uh, Famously said before the Senate Watergate Committee. The difference, of course, is that uh, uh, Dean had had spent lots of time with Nixon and could report in detail on what Nixon said. Not true 
of of the of Ambassador Sondland. He didn't spend much time with the president. And the one thing he repeated that the president told him and the president himself uh, with his notes showed them on the White House lawn, you know, uh, no quid pro quo. I want nothing from Ukraine. And the Republicans are using that as, look, the, the, this is a direct quote from the president, according to Sondland. And he said he didn't uh, he had nothing to do with it. Uh, the president is saying that. And of course, what's absurd about that is the president was making that comment uh, the day that the whole whistleblower uh, revelation uh, uh, blew up. Uh, so it, it's it's useless. It's pointless. And yet they as a as a as a exculpatory. And yet the Republicans keep in almost in an attack on reason, keep citing it as, oh, look at that. So let me, Jack, let let me play a a clip now. Republicans have claimed that because President Trump, to our knowledge, has not expressly written or said that U.S. aid to Ukraine was conditioned on investigation, and by explicitly, I mean explicitly, that there was no wrongdoing. Here's Ohio Congressman Mike Turner, a Republican on the Intelligence Committee, who was questioning Sondland on Wednesday about why he thought the two were related. You really have no testimony today that ties President Trump to a scheme to withhold aid from Ukraine in exchange for these investigations. Other than my own presumption. Which is nothing. I mean, that's what I don't understand. So you know what hearsay evidence is, Ambassador? Hearsay is when I testify what someone else told me. Do you know what made-up testimony is? Made-up testimony is when I just presume it. I mean, you're just assuming all of these things. Let's take a call now from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Jim, uh, give us your thoughts here. Hello. Um, First of all, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'll start with I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is obviously a very red state. Um, As a result of all this, I'm no longer a Republican. Um, I would consider being a Republican if we had real Republicans like Governor, excuse me, Mayor Bynum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, The way that the Republican Party is dealing with this, it just blows me away. It's astonishing the way they're deflecting and just darn right lying. Um, it's quite obvious what's going on, and I really hope that uh, Representative Nunez and Representative Jordan do not get reelected in 2020. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Representative uh, Nunez, of course, of uh, Fresno, <laughs> California. Jim Jordan from uh, from Ohio are two of the leading uh, Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee. want to take uh, a- another quick call from uh, Joan. She's been uh, listening and waiting uh, from Sarasota, Florida. Thanks, Joan. Uh, tell us what your thinking is on all this. Thank you. Everything has a beginning. In the beginning, Ukraine had an open investigation on Burisma, while Joe Biden was vice president, and he came forward on record. It's recorded. It's uh, viewable. And he said braggingly that Ukraine must stop investigating his son or he was going to withhold aid money. And he was successful in doing that. That is the quid pro quo. That is the crime here. The State Department opened up a file to investigate this. So Ukraine is investigating Vice President Democrat Biden. He says that he is going to withhold on a recording 
So the State Department opens up its own investigation at the time. So, so Joan, I, Joan, I take it that your point – yeah, Karen, yeah. Karen I'm going to let you weigh in I, here I, just I'm a sorry. Moment. I just need to interject because I think the, the, the what your caller is laying out there is not actually factual. The Go Biden ahead, threat – to yeah, so, so Biden's recorded it, – it is on tape. It's on video actually. Uh, it's at the Council on Foreign Relations in January 2018. He talked openly about how he said he was – that, you know, you're not going to get a billion dollars in loan guarantees, which is slightly different than what your caller is describing, but a billion dollars in loan guarantees unless you got rid of Shokin, who is the prosecutor, who was the pre- the predecessor to Lutsenko, who's the former prosecutor that was involved with Giuliani. But the question was not about if you stop investigating my son. It was a question about Shokin, who actually was the one who seemed to be shutting down the investigation into Burisma. So actually, it works across purposes. For Biden to say, you're, and Biden wasn't the only one. He was speaking on behalf of the United States, Europe, like the whole West wanted Shokin gone because Shokin was actually going easy on this company. So it, it, it's it's taking opposite arguments to put them but, together but, but like those that. Are the facts. Exactly. But it's actually but, – but I think it's really important to point out, yes, there was an investigation into Zlachevsky, who is the head of Burisma, that died down, that there was a question of whether that should have been picked up back up again. But that was one of the things th- – these investigations of these types of people going away is why the West was pressing Ukraine to get rid of these corrupt prosecutors general. And that's the focus that came up that, – and, and Biden's words had to do with Shokin, not his son. And, David, and so I think it's but, important that your listeners hold, hold are clear on, 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 clear on that. Absolutely. I just want to thank Joan for – call, and I want to turn to you, Major Garrett. Go yeah. ahead. We've so, got a couple so minutes let's, left. Let's put this through the real deal filter. Let's say that everything the caller said is true, which it isn't. But let's say, say there was something there that maybe should be plumbed more deeply. Interpol is available for any U.S. government to make an inquiry. Didn't happen. The Justice Department under President Trump could have done something, did nothing. So, you have to ask yourself, if it was a big deal, if this was something that was serious, why was no actual effort undertaken by this administration to look into it? Only it rises now as either a diversion or something else when all the powers vested in this administration to root out whatever this was were not taken, not at one single level. So that's one thing. And just to jump... And just to jump off of what Major was saying, um, I think that is also worth noting that, yes, the witnesses have said it's not a good look for the former vice president's son to be on the board of a, a company like this. But, Undoubtedly, yeah. Um, but, but the pressure that Trump was putting was putting pressure on Ukraine to do to announce an investigation. I think it's vital that Sondland kept repeating that, to announce an investigation, not necessarily to do an investigation. Mm-hmm. He wasn't pressuring his own Justice Department to do it. Th- th- Ukraine's not an extension of the United States uh, legal and law enforcement apparatus. It's a separate country. And Sondland's uh, Sondland's um, suggestion was that the president didn't really care about justice being carried out, so to speak, in this regard. He wanted the announcement, which David, suggested that there was a political end to that, not necessarily the before, corruption aim. And David, the, uh, the other ahead, aspect the that came up a segment, lot was ahead, this interest that the president had uh, in corruption. No one on the Republican side disputed the facts laid before the committee, which are as follows. Lutsenko was a corrupt prosecutor general. No one disputed that on the Republican side. It's not disputable. And that Rudy Giuliani was working with him because he was feeding a false narrative full of slanderous allegations about a non-corrupt, corruption-fighting ambassador in the United States, Marie Yovanovitch. None of those things were contested. All right, we're discussing where the impeachment inquiry stands as lawmakers take the week off for Thanksgiving. Then coming up next, we'll talk about the fifth Democratic presidential debate and a candidate who saw a big surge. We'll be taking calls right after this brief break. 
I'm David Folkenflick. You're listening to On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, Israel's attorney general announced indictments against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in three separate corruption cases on bribery, fraud, and breach of trust charges. It's the first time in Israel's history that a sitting prime minister has been indicted. And President Trump made a controversial choice to pardon two military officers who were convicted of war crimes. Sasha Pfeiffer will be sitting in and hosting On Point on Monday, and she'll be taking a deep uh, dive on that. We have a well-sourced panel of guests this hour with me. Karen Demergen, she's congressional reporter at The Washington Post, and Major Garrett, chief Washington correspondent at CBS News, as well as our own On Point news analyst, Jack Beatty. I want to uh, to uh, take a couple more calls now uh, to allow people to weigh in. It just seems as though uh, this – is lighting people up in a way that I haven't seen in some time. Uh, Paul is calling from Omaha, Nebraska. Thanks for listening, Paul. Uh, tell me your thoughts. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, first thing I want to do is just going back to the beginning of the hour, you said, where are you on a scale of impeachable to perfect performance? <laughs> uh, and then I, 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 that'll be the, the focus of what I say. And then, you know, to put it in context, I'm an independent voter. Probably 90% of the time I vote Republican because I am a businessman. I appreciate those, that, that position. Uh, like the previous caller, I am extremely disappointed in the Republican behavior. I think the Republicans are spineless at this point, and they're protecting a pathological liar. So to answer your opening question, I think the man is fully impeachable. I've listened to the testimonies of uh, uh Dr. Hill and, and David, and I can't remember his last name, uh, but I think the stories are credible. I think they're well-documented. I think they're contemporaneous uh, uh, reports about the events that took place. I think, uh, you know, the, uh, the Army colonel who, who responded quickly after the call and reported it, these people, I think, are... are very credible in the way they're reporting the events and and their instincts. Uh, one of your panelists said, "Well, you know, the president, it, you know, uh, said, you know, there is no pr- uh, quid pro quo, um, you know, blah 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 blah." We have seen that this is a pathological liar for the last couple of years. He has mm-hmm. absolutely no credibility. He 
makes up whatever he wants to say at the moment to make it work. Uh, he has, the, and, and most importantly, he has demonstrated time and time again that he has no respect for the rule of law. And our country is founded on and based upon rule of law that governs everybody. And he is trying to be exempt from the rule of law in this country. And I think I think he is totally unfit for the presidency. He has proven that over and over again. Right, uh, it well, has nothing to do with policy. It has to do with the fact that he has no respect for the rule of law of this country. Paul, thank you for calling. We appreciate that perspective from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Major Garrett, uh, uh, you know, uh, some of what Paul said sound a little polemical, although he uh, says he's an independent who almost always votes Republican. But a lot of the, the seeming polemical stuff actually is just factual. That is that the president uh, often says things that are untrue, sometimes it seems to explicitly lie, and that he has, you know, really a certain kind of expressed contempt for the rule of law. That is just, you know, you documented that in your book. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen instances of that since. Um, Jake Tapper on CNN has a, a documentary coming out, I believe, Sunday night about the question of truth and and essentially misinformation uh, from from the administration and how it affects both public discourse but also information and 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 you know our understanding of reality from government sources of information to what extent can what the administration and its defenders now say be credited given that track record over his two and a half more than two and a half years in office well it's the big topic for the country uh, what is truth what is confirmable what is believable and how do you take the totality of explanations or defenses from Republicans against this body of evidence? And I will say something that I said on Evening News earlier this week, texting with a House Democrat who's not on the House Intelligence Committee, but very deeply involved on the sidelines of this. He said, look, after all this evidence, after all this testimony, one side is going to believe what it wants to believe, and the other side is going to believe what it wants to believe and nothing else. This was a despondent sort of text about where tribal politics have taken us. So that's someone who's in elected office observing this as it plays out according to his own antennae. That's a rather, as I, as I said, a despairing take on what's been demonstrated, what's been testified to, and what the either Republican or White House uh, line of explanation or defense is. Just one other thing I'd like to point out about someone who hasn't testified, but who could be very relevant in this. And again, this is not contested by anyone, Republican, White House, anything. The former National Security Advisor to the President of the United States, his third, John Bolton, was testified about twice, saying, when people were alarmed about this situation, finding it not only potentially corrupt, but certainly at odds with existing Trump administration policy, what did John Bolton say? Go tell the lawyers. What did he also say? Rudy Giuliani was what? An advocate for the president? Someone who was carrying out U.S. policy? Hand grenade. What did he think this whole thing was? Drug deal. That's the president's national security advisor. That's part of the body of evidence also not contested and submitted in the last week and a half. Uh, I want to take uh, uh, one last call here from uh, Hamden, Maine. In this case, uh, Jack has been listening and waiting patiently. Thanks, Jack. Yes, thank you. Uh, I'd just like to make uh, several points. Uh, I've been listening to the hearings, and 
especially to Mr. Sonderland. And I come from a law enforcement background. And uh, although in his statement he made the um, statement along the lines that it's at the president's direction and this sort of thing, that uh, and that's what he's mostly been quoted on, but just as in the clip that was pl- uh, played previously, he admitted that he did not get that directly from the president. He made an assumption that it was coming from the president. And when you're speaking of impeaching a president of the United States, basing that on hearsay, and, and a lot of the testimony is, well, I overheard someone else's phone call, or I spoke with Rudy or whatever, but, you know, you really get down to what was Donald Trump's motive. You've got a law from Congress that I learned for the first time yesterday says you cannot give aid to a country that is dealing with corruption. There's, without question, it was admitted by Sunderland and others that Ukraine has been dealing with corruption uh, issues. And Burismo, there's uh, corruption issues with that. So who's to say that for sure Donald Trump's motive is that this is about the Bidens? Just because a vice president's son happens to be associated with the company doesn't necessarily make him corrupt, but there's a company uh, sure. in play here that possibly is corrupt. And so, you know, without knowing for sure Donald Trump's motives, how can you impeach a president based on Sondland so or anyone else's did, testimony? So, Jack, Jack, let me... Because let me be, be, the, okay, Jack, what, Jack, media, we have go the ahead. President's, we have the president's own words in the transcript. He seems to think they're exculpatory. He says to uh, President Zelensky, I want you to do me, I want to ask a favor, though. And the favor is twofold. Uh, Look into the 2016 fiction. We know now that's a fiction, that it was Ukraine that somehow intervened in our uh, elections. And two, investigate Burisma and Biden and the Bidens. It's it's right there in the president's own words. so uh, that, that it was hearsay. a favor, David. Could that's, I that's he could said. I jump in with a sure? Could I jump in with a nitpicky thing? Sorry, just because your caller referenced laws about corruption, and I think it's important to note this: that yes, um, if if a country is kind of descending further into corruption, we don't like to give them money. But there's two things that are really vital here, which is that in order to the, the, Corruption is not the end-all and be-all of why we give Ukraine military aid. It's part of our greater strategy in facing off against Russia. And so, yes, there are internal reviews that have to be done to certify that things are moving in the right direction so that it's worth sending them this this the, the, these, this money that goes to pay for materials that we supply. The, the processes of that aren't important. But what is important is that as much as the president – if corruption was the reason – in July, August, and September, basically every agency that wasn't OMB that's involved in this state, defense, um, the National Security Council, the, the, the testimony is that they refused, that the, at least the Defense Department and others agreed, refused to do any more corruption reviews because they felt like Ukraine was already on the right track towards combating corruption and they had already proven that they were deserving of this money in that regard. <clears throat> the other thing that I think it's important to note, and we reported this maybe almost a month a month ago at this point that the you know we give countries aid to help them fight corruption the trump administration cut that aid 
to help cut fight corruption in places including Ukraine. And so the corruption argument doesn't work so well when every agency that actually controls the money to go over there is saying, no, that's fine. We did those checks and we think you can check that box off. There's no corruption concerns with us to send this money out the door. And at the same time, the Trump administration is slashing the budget of the the, the money that goes to help countries like Ukraine, including Ukraine, improve that. So it, it again, it's not exactly as your caller presented it. Um, sure. I think it's important for and listeners Karen, to note that. I want to play a clip now, which sort of uh, I thought was a, a really, you know, it sort of stilled the moment. Uh, uh, Fiona Hill uh, uh, was testifying. She testified for more than seven hours Thursday about her time as a, a National Security Council director for that part of the world. And she uh, – it seemed to me she disambiguated what was going on kind of brilliantly. Uh, she was talking about her clashes with Ambassador Gordon Sondland, who is ambassador of the EU. Is not, you know, Ukraine is not part of the EU, and in fact, Ukraine was not applying to be part of the EU, although it is, of course, adjacent uh, to, to, to European nations that are. But she's trying to figure out what was – why there was a clash there, why what she was trying to accomplish to get – to uncork that, uh, that defensive military aid for the Ukraines uh, was not happening. And she said that she realized while watching Sondland's testimony that the confrontations were born from her not understanding what Sondland had really been asked to do. But it struck me when yesterday, when you put up on the screen Ambassador Sondland's emails and who was on these emails, and he said, these are the people who need to know that he was absolutely right, because he was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy, and those two things had just diverged. So he was correct, and I had not put my finger on that at the moment, But I was irritated with him and angry with him that he wasn't fully coordinating. And I did say to him, Ambassador Sondland, Gordon, I think this is all going to blow up. And here we are. So there we are uh, indeed. It's sort of, I think, distilled uh, and brought into the open in a very clearly defined way how there were two things happening at the same time, not just outside channels, but outside channels in some ways warring with each other. Uh, Current emergent. To what extent did uh, uh, do you feel that impeachment is hanging over uh, the ability of Democrats to make a case for themselves apart from not being Donald Trump as they look at the public and as they express themselves uh, at the debate? Uh, you're talking about just in the greater political world in which we live right now for uh, – Well, I'm talking about the impeachment hearings that happen, that's happening right now but also the debates that are happening right now with, with these Democratic candidates. They, they've got to talk about impeachment but that's not all they want to do. Because all of them oh, uh, disagree yeah. with Trump on this, right? Well, yes. I mean, I, I think that it's look, it's it's hanging over everything right now. It's 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 almost comical when Nancy Pelosi gives press conferences at which and what it, that she starts off by saying, "Let's talk about prescription drug prices and infrastructure." And and I mean, this these are the things that Democrats want to talk about. They want to talk about health care. They want to talk about the economy on the campaign trail because they feel like that's what helps them win. But you can't ignore impeachment right now, and it's it's sucking all the air out of the room. It is the focus. I think it is pretty obvious that the House Democrats. Democrats will successfully vote to impeach the president likely before the end of the year if there's no major major hiccups or delays in that. Um, but the question is what do you then do from there? Because if this goes to a Senate trial, it doesn't go away um, and it keeps being something that is front and center I think easily through February, maybe even longer. 
Um, so at, at that point, you know, it becomes complicated for the, the Democrats who are on the presidential circuit to try to make their case on any sort of a national platform. Although at this point, I think they are, you know, spending the bulk of their time trying to talk individually to voters and groups of sure. voters in the early primary states. So it's two messages that will conflict if they you try to put them on the same airwaves. And that's why they conflict during the, the debates like the one we watched this week. Um, but I, as, I, as Bernie Sanders, that's says, one of the reasons know. that I was going to say that's one of the reasons that I – Go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say I think for Nancy Pelosi, this is probably something she's looking forward to once this gets out of the House to turn the conversation back to focus on passing legislation that may get stopped at the door of the Senate but at least puts the Democrats back on the message of the domestic bread and butter issues that they want to sell to voters. Major Garrett, I'm going to give you the last word. We've got about a minute left. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he seemed to have a real pop in polls in the two yep. uh, early uh, primary caucus states of Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, is this something that's meaningful for Buttigieg? And is, uh, what does it say about where his candidacy is at the moment? Sure, it's meaningful for everyone who rises from obscurity to frontrunner status. And the most difficult process, I've covered five presidential campaigns, is to go from alternative to it. Alternative is, well, there's a front runner, but you look really interesting here on the side and you're rising, you're rising, and you really look like an interesting alternative to me. Then you, when you become the front runner, you transition from alternative to it. Is he, and the is it he, is, is he a front runner? Can you be the commander in chief? Can you lead the nation? That's always a struggle for every campaign. Pete Buttigieg is in the middle of that process right now. And there are other alternatives on his flanks. And as we've seen in this process, alternatives rise, then they become it, and then there's a different assessment. That's where Democrats are currently. And we're only, you know, something like eight weeks out from uh, first things happening in Iowa or so. Uh, Those were the words of Major Garrett, Chief Washington Correspondent for CBS News. Major, thanks for joining our roundtable today. Of course. We've also been hearing from Karin Demergent. She's a congressional reporter focused on national security for The Washington Post. Karin, great to have you. And thanks to you to Jack Beattie, On Point's own news analyst. Jack, great to talk with you as always. Thank you, David. Our executive producers, Karen Schiffman, me, I'm David Folkenflick. You've been listening to On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment. How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or environmental social governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone for getting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors 
We're looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu.